Many end-time Bible prophecies concerning Israel were either fulfilled in the 20th century or else their fulfillment was initiated in that century. One of the most remarkable has to do with the revival of the Hebrew language from the dead. Stay tuned for this fascinating story. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. As I said at the beginning of this program, one of the things that excites me the most about Bible prophecy is that we are living in a time when we can see many of the end-time prophecies fulfilled before our very eyes. In the 20th century, seven of the end-time prophecies related to Israel were either fulfilled or were in the process of being fulfilled. They were the regathering of the Jewish people from the four corners of the world, second, the reestablishment of the State of Israel on May the 14th, 1948. Third, the reclamation of the land of Israel from a barren wasteland to an agricultural land of abundance. Fourth, the revival of the Hebrew language from the dead. Fifth, the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem on June the 7th, 1967. And number six, the resurgence of Israeli military power. And finally, number seven, the refocusing of world politics on the nation of Israel. All of these events represent the fulfillment in whole or in part of very specific end-time prophecies that can be found in the Hebrew Scriptures. In this program, we're going to take a look at the prophecy whose fulfillment began before the 20th century, but which was completely fulfilled during the 20th century. It is one of the most amazing of all the prophecies. What I have in mind is the revival of the Hebrew language from the dead. For that remarkable story, let's go to Ben Yehuda Street in New Jerusalem. Israel and to the new city of Jerusalem. And when I say new, what I'm talking about is the fact that this is the new part of Jerusalem as compared to the old city of Jerusalem that is surrounded by the walls. We are sitting here on a street called Ben Yehuda Street, and it is sort of the heartthrob of the new New Jerusalem. It's very busy here. Uh, this is on a noon on a day when people are coming to eat lunch, but it's really busy at night. Come down here at the nighttime, and particularly on a after the Sabbath ends on Saturday, about 9 o'clock at night, people come from all over Jerusalem and they have fellowship, they eat ice cream, uh, they, um, uh, they, uh, you have street vendors of all kinds, people playing violins and guitars and break dancers, uh, uh, tattoo artists, you name it, you'll find it here on Ben Yehuda Street. 
Now, in Israel, almost every city has a street named Ben Yehuda Street. Who was Ben Yehuda? What is this all about? First, let me read you a scripture. In the Hebrew scriptures, in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, Speaking of the end times, In those days I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. Throughout the centuries, Christians, as well as Jews, have believed that this was a prophecy that in the end times, the biblical language, biblical Hebrew, would be revived. Eliezer ben Yehuda was the man who fulfilled that prophecy. He was born in Lithuania in 1858 in an Orthodox Jewish family. Uh, He began studying uh, reading when he was three years old. He was absolutely a genius. He excelled in all languages. He learned Hebrew very quickly. By the age of 12, he was already fluent in many languages like French and German and Russian. Uh, He was a spectacular language specialist. His family wanted him to be a rabbi, but that never was something that he seemed to be interested in. Instead, he decided to move to Paris and to study medicine. And he was there for four years studying medicine. And while he was there, the spirit of nationalism began to sweep across Europe. The idea of one nation for every people, the Balkans, every group of people there was wanting their own nation. And that spirit of nationalism touched his heart and his soul. And he decided, you know, we really need a nation for, uh, a land for the nation of the Jews. And this was before Herzl came on the scene. In fact, a number of years before Herzl, who's considered the founder of modern day Israel, came on the scene. He had this vision of, let's go back to our homeland and let's start speaking biblical Hebrew once again, because he believed it was essential if the Jewish people were really going to be a nation for them to have their own special language. Now, to truly understand what this was all about, you have to understand that when the Jews were scattered by the Romans all over the world after 70 AD, that the Jewish people stopped speaking Hebrew. Those who went into the European area took Hebrew and they mixed it with German and they came up with a new language called Yiddish. And the Jews who were scattered into the Mediterranean basin, they took Hebrew and they mixed it with Spanish to come up with a language called Ladino. Jews continued to read Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, in the synagogue, for example, or when they were reading the Talmud or various uh, uh, religious papers. But they stopped speaking Hebrew as an everyday language. They were speaking either Yiddish, Ladino, or the language of whatever country they happened to live in. So, Hebrew, over the 2,000 years following the dispersion of the Jews all over the world, became essentially a dead language as far as being spoken by people on an everyday basis. In 1881, at the age of 23, Ben Yehuda was diagnosed with tuberculosis, and he was told that he only had a very short time to live. So he decided that what he was going to do was that he was going to move to the land of his people, to his homeland. And if he was going to die young, he was going to die there. Well, folks, that was about the worst decision you could make in 1881. 
because he moved to this land to the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem at that time was an incubator of disease. Just about every disease you could imagine was rampant in the city. People were dying of tuberculosis and cholera and yellow fever and plague and you, you name it. But that's where he came. And God supernaturally extended this man's life, even with TB, for many, many years thereafter. When he arrived here, he became obsessed with the revival of the Hebrew language. He would work 12, 18 hours a day trying to revive the Hebrew language from the dead so that it would become a daily spoken language of the people. Let me try to give you an example of what we're talking about here. What if I were to tell you that God had spoken to me and said he's fed up with modern English and he wants us to go back to the pure English that existed in the time of Chaucer? when he wrote the Canterbury Tales. Now, folks, that's English only 600 years ago. This man was going back 2,000 years in trying to revive a language. But here's what English sounded like when Chaucer wrote. One that April with its surest sorta, the drut of March hath passed to the rota, and bothered every vein in swish liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. If I told you that God had told me that we got to go back and revive that language and bring it up to date, I suspect you would be calling the guys with the butterfly nets and having me put away as incurably insane. Well, let me tell you, there were many people who felt that way about Eliezer ben Yehuda. He had people attacking him from both sides. For example, the men who later became the major political leaders of Israel in its early years were all socialists. And they were men who were mainly agnostics. Some were atheists. Uh, they didn't want to speak a biblical language. They wanted a modern language. On the other hand, the ultra-Orthodox were also opposed to Ben Yehuda because they believed that Hebrew was a biblical language that should never be spoken on the street. So he had both sides attacking him all the time. And yet this man was so obsessed and so determined that he succeeded. Ben Yehuda was very systematic in the way he went about reviving the Hebrew language as a spoken language. His first step, Hebrew at home. He began to tell all of his friends and associates, we will never revive this language unless we commit to speak only biblical Hebrew at home. And I tell you, he was a radical about this. He gave strict instructions to his wife that they were only to speak biblical Hebrew. In 1882, shortly after they arrived here, their first child was born, a son, who was named Ben-Avi, and he said, this is going to be the first true modern Hebrew-speaking person. He said, we're not going to allow anybody in his, his presence for 12 years unless they can speak biblical Hebrew. Well, folks, nobody spoke biblical Hebrew except a small group of people. So. The young boy had no playmates. Uh, he was not, if they had somebody over, he would take him and put him in an isolated room because he was afraid the people might speak Russian or some other language, and he did not want the boy to hear anything but biblical Hebrew. He was so obsessed that later when he had two daughters, he would not let them marry until their suitors could pass an exam in biblical Hebrew. <laughs> Neither one got married until they were in their 30s. So this was a man who was really determined in what he was doing, and his first step was Hebrew in the home. His second step was Hebrew in the schools. 
he thought the only way we can really revive this language is to get the young people to speak it. So he went to all of the Jewish schools in Jerusalem and he tried to talk the headmasters into introducing biblical Hebrew. Well, one of the problems with that, most of them were willing to do it, but one of the problems was they, did, they didn't have any written materials for the kids, they didn't have teachers. So he began to develop a small group of followers and would teach them how to teach Hebrew. He did it himself. And so these teachers began to spread out in the schools of Jerusalem to teach the young people uh, the Hebrew words. You know, uh, I, I might just pause here and say that when he was reviving this language, he had to invent many, many words, folks. Over 2,000 years, there were many concepts, many ideas, many inventions that there were no Hebrew words for. And being a purist, he wouldn't take a word like television or radio and just transliterate it. It had to be a pure Hebrew word with a pure Hebrew root. And he and his followers would often argue hours over a particular word as he would create word after word after word that he had to create. So first was Hebrew in the home. Second was Hebrew in the schools. And the third step he took was to establish a newspaper in 1884, and this was his way of getting Hebrew to adults. He established a newspaper, he virtually became the editor of the newspaper, and it was a daily newspaper with news of, of Palestine, as it was called in that time, and news of the world. And he was constantly having to create new words. He was constantly uh, publishing new vocabularies of words, testing words on people. And this was the way he began to get the adults to read biblical Hebrew as it was being modernized. So we have Hebrew in the home, Hebrew in the schools, and Hebrew in the newspaper for the adults. His fourth step was to compile a dictionary of the Hebrew language, and this was really what he spent most of his life doing. He would travel to England, he would travel any place where somebody found a, a lost Hebrew word. He was just obsessed with these, and he put together an incredible dictionary, 17 volumes entitled Ancient and Modern Hebrew. Uh, when he died, he had, only, he had not completed the dictionary. He only had 17 of what I think came 21 or 20 some odd volumes. But his wife, uh, his second wife, his first wife died of TB. His second wife was able to complete that incredible dictionary. The fifth step in reviving the language was the creation of a language council. He did this in 1890. He put together a group of friends who had been studying with him and working with him, and they became the official council to determine issues of grammar, issues of punctuation, uh, new words, which words would actually be adopted and used. And you know, I was doing some research on this, and I, you just can't begin to imagine all the words that had to be created. You know, we think of mainly scientific words of new inventions, but for example, there were no words in biblical Hebrew for doll, ice cream, jelly, omelet, handkerchief, towel, bicycle, and hundreds of more of just daily words of that nature. Or for example, there was no words for newspaper, editor, telegram, subscriber, soldier, fashion, on and on it went. All of these words had to be created. And again, being a purist, he wanted to create them from biblical Hebrew root words. So it was a major effort. Within a generation, a biblical generation of 40 years, from 1881 to 1921, he and his friends were able to revive the Hebrew language from the dead as a spoken language. 
They were so successful that in 1922, Biblical Hebrew was adopted as one of the official languages of Palestine. At that time, the British were in charge of this land, and they declared three languages to be the official languages of this land. Biblical Hebrew, English, and Arabic. One month later, after that declaration, in November of 1922, Ben Yehuda died at the age of 64. Some language experts uh, in Hebrew or language experts in general have argued in recent years that Hebrew never was really a dead language, that people, even at the time of Ben Yehuda, they estimate that 50% of the men could read biblical Hebrew, going to the synagogue, reading the scriptures, and that probably 20% of them could have read a book written in Hebrew, but they didn't speak it, and they couldn't speak it because there weren't enough words to be used in speaking it. One expert on language put it this way. He said, before Ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. After him, they did. And that's true. He is the one who revived it as a spoken language. Here is something that was found in his diary. Um, before he died. In fact, I think this was published uh, in his newspaper. Yes, it was. It was published in his newspaper in 1908. Here's what he wrote about himself. For everything there is needed only one wise, clever, and active man with the initiative to devote all his energies to it, and the matter will progress all obstacles in the way notwithstanding. In every new event, every step, even the smallest in the path of progress, it is necessary that there be one pioneer who will lead the way without leaving any possibility of turning back. For the revival of the Hebrew language, that pioneer was Eliezer ben Yehuda. life story of Eliezer ben Yehuda is truly a remarkable one. And that remarkable story is contained in this book, Tongue of the Prophets by Robert St. John. You'll be told at the end of the program how you can get a copy of it. When I was recently in Jerusalem, I found the grave of ben Yehuda while I was exploring the thousands of Jewish graves on the Mount of Olives. It is the most ornate grave on the side of the mountain, surrounded by a high ironwork fence. What a blessing it was for me to put a stone of remembrance on his tomb. Like all Orthodox Jews, Ben Yehuda desired to be buried on the Mount of Olives because of Orthodox Jews' belief that when the Messiah comes, he will come first to the Mount of Olives. And they therefore believe that those who are buried on the Mount of Olives will be the first to be resurrected. That belief, of course, is very biblical because Zechariah 14 says that when Jesus returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives and that when his feet touch the mountain, it will split in two. And he will then speak a supernatural word that will destroy all the forces of the Antichrist, and he will begin his reign over all the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, the Orthodox Jews are correct in their expectation that the Messiah will return to the Mount of Olives. What is going to surprise them is his identity, for he is going to have nail prints in his hand.
Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and our consideration of the miraculous revival of the Hebrew language and fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, I've asked my colleague Nathan Jones to join me for a discussion of prophecy being fulfilled in Israel today. Nathan, welcome. Thank you. Good Always good to have you on the set. Well, Nathan, um, at the beginning of the program, I mentioned uh, a number of prophecies being fulfilled in Israel today, and the one we focused on was a revival of the Hebrew language. How do you feel about that? Do you believe that is really a sign of the end times that we're living on board times? Well, just like Israel becoming a nation again after almost 1,900 years, a language coming back from the dead and becoming a national language. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, Latin. Sure, people speak Latin, but only in academic circles. That's right. But Hebrew is an official language of a country. That means something. You can go back to Zephaniah 3.9 where it says, then, I will, then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. So when the Messiah comes back, He wants a people group ready right. to be able to speak to them in a pure language, pure of heart, but also pure speech in the language of Hebrew, which uh, I had to look up because depending <laughs> on the translation, it's either lips or language. So I looked up the word lips and it's sawfall, which means lips, language, or speech. So yeah. it covers both of them. Right, right. Well, let me ask you another question. Uh, I, at the beginning of the program, I listed these seven prophecies that I think are being fulfilled in Israel today. And uh, all of them beginning in the 20th century and some of them in the early 20th century. Uh, is there another one of those that you would emphasize as a sure sign that we're living in the season of the Lord's return? Well, my favorite one, and this is from one of our trips over to Israel. While we were touring, we were heading up north from Tel Aviv up towards Caesarea Maritime and all. And as we're driving down the road, the the sides of the highways were covered in flowers. And as we got even around the Dead Sea, they had gardens there where they were growing trees and and things like that. And I was amazed at the agricultural bounty of Israel. And I had read it. Mark Twain had gone back there in the 1800s, and he said it was a barren wasteland. They'd actually had the trees counted. But I went through there. I was just amazed at how they have turned that place back into a garden paradise again. Well, I'm not the least bit surprised that you would focus on that one, because what our viewers don't know is that you're a guy who loves plants, who loves to plant everything. In fact, when you first moved to Texas, you planted everything that you shouldn't have planted and all died. In fact, you even got things from Israel. (laughs) And you had to learn that certain plants are are, are set for certain soils. That and customs won't let them through. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that. Ezekiel 36, 34-35. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all passed through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins destroyed desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. And all the cities are back, the gardens are back, the growth is back, the production is back. Supposedly all that plant life has increased the rainfall in Israel. That's a miracle. It really is. And uh, when I take groups over there, I I, I try to get them to do a lot of reading before we go so they can appreciate that. Because if you Mm -hmm. just go and you don't know anything about the background of Israel, you don't realize how it has literally been converted from from a wasteland to what looks like the Garden of Eden today because it's so agriculturally productive. You know, when you drive through the, the Valley of Sharon, you look out the bus and on one side there's there's cotton fields and strawberry fields. And you look on the other side, there's peanut fields and there's uh, all kinds of, of uh, tropical fruit like bananas. I mean, they grow everything over there. It's mm-hmm. amazing what, uh, what has happened. The Bible promised when the Jews came back, God would bless the land once again. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, when I look at that list of seven, one that uh, uh, really impresses me is the regathering of the Jewish people from yes, the four definitely. corners of the earth. I mean, they were literally scattered all over creation. 
By the beginning of the 20th century there were Jews on every continent, every land, and yet God began to regather them. It's the most, uh, most prolific prophecy in the Old Testament. I often wonder how anyone can look at what God did in the 20th century regathering those people and not realize that this is a God thing, that this is a miracle of God. And yet so many Christians are just blind about that because they've been taught that God has no purpose left for the Jews. I know. They've been taught all their lives that well, the Jews regathered when they came back to Babylon. Oh, yeah. But when you read Isaiah 11, 11 through 12, it clearly says, in that day the Lord will reach out His hand a second time. And He even lists all the nations. It's not just Babylon. Yeah. It goes on to say the islands of the sea. That, well, that's the entire planet. So that the Jews are being regathered from the entire planet is a phenomenon. I mean, unheard of in human history. In fact, in the very next verse it says He's going to regather both Judah and Israel. That's all the Jewish people. Uh-huh. And yet when I was a kid, I, and I discovered that, my pastor said, oh no, no, that's all been fulfilled in the return from Babylon. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the return from Babylon. Mm-hmm. And yet we have lived to see it happen. You know, one of the things I enjoy most about taking people on a pilgrimage to Israel is to take them to Independence Hall. Yeah. Tell us how you felt the first time you went there. Well, you're, it's kind of similar to Independence Hall in Philadelphia. I used to live in Philadelphia, and, and you felt the weight of history come upon you. And you go into that, and it's not a very assuming building or anything, yeah. but you know that a nation was launched there, a nation that biblically, prophetically said it was going to launch. If we go back to uh, Isaiah 66, 7 through 8, before she goes into labor, she gives birth, and before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has heard such a thing, and who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day, or a nation be brought forth in a minute. And yet on May 14th, 1948, it happened. And to go there and to see that makes you kind of feel a little part of history too. Well, it really does. And of course, I I too have the same feeling about the the comparison you made between it and and, uh, uh, Constitution Hall in Philadelphia, except for one thing, and that is that uh, the, the hall there in Tel Aviv means so much more to me because it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. We got to see it with our own eyes. And you go there, you know, the thing gets me, it, it's such a small place. It, maybe at most you could crowd 200 people in there, but they would be shoulder to shoulder. And uh, there was only one photographer there. There was no CNN, no Fox News, nothing like that. It was just a, an event that the, most of the world was not even aware of when it took place. And yet, what a momentous fulfillment of Bible prophecy it was and how Harry Truman intervened to recognize Israel 14 seconds later and that actually saved the state. It's amazing that America could be part of Bible prophecy being fulfilled Absolutely. There. Well, we got a list of seven there and we mentioned several of them. Is there any other one that you would want to mention that uh, uh, has been particularly uh, important to you? You see that whole list of seven? Yeah, just turn on the news. I've never seen a country the size of, of New Jersey, basically, <laughs> constantly in the news, constantly. The elections that go on, everyone's concentrating on what are we going to do with Israel? The Middle East is all embroiled over Israel. And that goes back to Zechariah 12, 1 through 3, that all the nations of the earth would be besieged against her. Now, of course, we know that will find final fulfillment yes. when the Antichrist armies surround Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation. But the entire world is focused on who's controlling Jerusalem and what land Israel gets. I, that means something. That's important. It really is, and particularly, and it's amazing when you consider the fact that Israel is so tiny. It's only 75 miles wide. It's only 300 miles long. As you said, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey. Yet it's the focus of all of world politics. There's more international correspondence in the city of Jerusalem than any other city on planet Earth. And that's because it's the center of the cosmic battle between God and Satan. And it's where Jesus Christ is going to return, defeat Satan totally, and uh, begin to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, folks, 
That's our program for this week. I hope it's been a blessing to you. And until next week, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Nathan and myself saying, look up folks, be watchful for our redemption is drawing near. Tongue of the Prophets is the enthralling story of how God worked through Eliezer ben Yehuda to fulfill a Bible prophecy that biblical Hebrew would be revived in the end times. You'll be fascinated by the story of a faithful fanatic who lived his whole life on the verge of death from tuberculosis, and yet he fathered 11 children, all while gathering material for a 17-volume dictionary of the Hebrew language. In the process, ben Yehuda became the first man in history to ever revive a dead language, the language of the ancient Hebrew prophets. A copy of this book can be yours for a gift of $17 or more plus shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday, or order online at lamblion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 